I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch your darting tongue phallus. The priest just kind of laughed. The deacon caught a draft. She crashed into the Easter Mass with her hair done up in broken glass. She was limping left on broken heels and she said, Father, can I tell your congregation how a resurrection really feels? Hey, Aaron, we love to watch your tarting tongue phallus. Yeah, well, it's not like we just came up with that literally 30 seconds before we started recording. Um, so everything's a work in progress. Aaron. Yeah, our, our new titles aren't aren't gelling with us as well yet. We're trying to figure out how they work, but uh, we're going to get there, guys. Uh, titles are there. important. So thank you so much for joining us on our second week of We Love to Watch's Alien Reinvasion Month. It's you mean se- third week? No, this is our second week. Because this will this will come out after Predator Two, right? Yeah, but Predator Two is our first week. Oh, I was counting Dune. Sorry, which, I which is not you. which is not part of Alien Reinvasion Month. It's Sorry. okay. This is another example, guys. We're gonna get it. All right, we're gonna get how months work. All right, <laughs> what our title is. We're gonna we're gonna figure this out, and and that that should explain something to you that this is this is the second week of Alien Reinvasion for all you listeners out there. This is the first week for us because once again, Summer Breeze is taking us away. Peter's gonna be on vacation. Actually, in my neck of the woods, as I think we've referenced on this show so we are pre-recording this episode prior to our predator 2 episode with rick kelly we need to thank rick for being on the show but we we don't know what's going to happen on last week's show yet because we haven't recorded it so we want to run through some you know scenarios that once again that we think are really likely to happen on the predator 2 episode with rick kelly uh, now, last time we did this, I, you know, Peter, you were editing that episode. I don't know if it was an editing mistake, but you're supposed to pare down to all the things that occurred. And it, and it felt like everything that we recorded accidentally made it to air. Yeah. So here's what happened. I uh, was editing it and, you know, I edited it uh, just blackout drunk, right? Yeah. I mean, most of the things we do with the show are, are blackout drunk during the day. I don't even know that I make a podcast. Sometimes my wife will mention it. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Everything is a half-remembered dream. And uh, f- frankly, when I heard all those scenarios, I thought they all happened. Oh, okay. Well, that's that makes sense. Yeah, um, even the ones that were highly contradictory. Yeah. <laughs> so so this time, guys, you're, you're going to hear the one that, that had actually happened. We'll, we'll edit this after. I, I'm sure that there will not be a similar mistake. This time around, you're going to hear all of these potential scenarios that we think are likely. So, Rick is going to be so nice as to have Will join us, and, and we want to make sure we honor that. So, we're just going to run through a few things. These are just going to be for editing purposes once again. So, I, again, I think the most likely scenario is, uh, thank you so much for being on our show last week, Rick. We had a blast, and we hope to have you on again soon. So, that's one potential for editing purposes if rick comes on we have a great time there's nothing else we need to talk about we're going to use that one so uh i'm going to go to the next one here just some other scenarios thank you so much for being on our show last week rick hey rick i checked 
1997 has already happened, and there won't be another one any day now. You were incorrect about that. That was frankly embarrassing on his part. Yeah, I mean, understand the linearity of time. No, no. I mean, just because Predator 2 is in the future and the future is 1997, he was wrong that there's another one coming around the bend. So, (laughs) fuck you, Rick. (laughs) I'm sensing a theme. (laughs) We just want to say fuck you to previous guests. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, Do you want me to to run you through a scenario that I think will happen? Yeah, why don't you do a scenario? Uh, Thank you for joining, Rick. I wish you the best of luck with your commitment to only wearing thermal goggles for the rest of your life. Our commitment to science and research dictates that we should support you. You know, and I found out after that it's because Rick owns thermalgoggles.com. His commitment was a little suspect. So thank you so much for being on our show, Rick. I am sorry that Peter kept saying, you ticked, Rick? Anytime you tried to discuss a flaw you saw in the movie. But normally we would have a discussion and figure out what worked and what didn't. Peter just saying, hey, hey, Rick, you ticked, Rick? Didn't really work with our normal vibe. Yeah, I wanted to create, you know, some segments. Is it so bad to want to expand the show past its current format? Yes. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) I have another one here. Thank you so much for being on our show. Rick, correction. Predator 2 is, in fact, a sequel to the 1987 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Predator. Oh, um, thank you for coming on the show, Rick. We had an interesting show, but I'm afraid we're going to have to Howard Stern, Artie Lang you and say that you're not allowed to come back until you get over your addiction. Your love of horse blood is ruining your life, Rick, mostly because horses are expensive. Do you know how much horses cost? The, the blood or the full horse? You have to buy the whole horse to get the blood. You you can't just like go to any glue factory and be like, can I have the blood? They, they want they want the whole kit and caboodle if they're going to buy the horse. So Can you reverse engineer glue into a full horse? That's something we can look into for future episodes, uh, science and research again. Well, well, this is a future episode. What did we find out? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, Rick, a quick correction. The Predator referred to in the movie is an alien hunter from outer space, uh, not director Roman Polanski. I'm sensing a theme. (laughs) The Roman Polanski is the enemy of the show theme. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show, Rick. It was a lot of fun. Hey, Rick, tag. Now you're it. Thank you. (laughs) I think I speak for the audience when I say thank you. Yeah. No, I I think everyone's going to know what that meant. (laughs) Thank you for coming on the show, Rick. It's actually the SS Minnow. The boat that brought Gilligan into the gang to the island was the SS Minnow. It was not the SS Sex Havers Club. Do you want to just send him a text and let him know that before we record? And before he further embarrasses himself. Yeah. This is basically like going back in time to solve the past. (laughs) Fix the future. It's a a sort of mistake that spreads like a virus. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, we have to put a stop to it. Thank you so much for being on the show last week, Rick. R.I.P. (laughs) uh rick uh, once again i wish i could say thank you for being on the show 
but uh, Aaron was deeply hurt by what you uh, had to say. Uh, Aaron does not shoot blanks, and he has a baby to prove it. <laughs> that's, what's funny is that's super close to one of mine. Uh, <laughs> say um, it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show last week, Rick. Now, despite what happened with Rick's quiz, future guests on our show are still welcome to bring their own quizzes for us. Just try and remember when creating them that Peter and I are human beings uh, with feelings and families, and everyone has a breaking point my tears uh matter actually yeah um i'm a human being uh they matter slightly less than aaron's on the worthington scale but my feelings have feelings too yeah i I got a quiz for you rick uh were aaron and peter's feelings hurt by your quiz and the answer is yes they were Most of these are just insults to Rick. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show last week. Uh, Rick, quick correction. Danny Glover did not get his last name because he refuses to wear mittens. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, thank you for being on the show, Rick. Donald Glover is not Danny Glover's son, actually. I'm sorry that I told you that and then called you a liar for t- <laughs> telling me off. Thank you so much for being on the show last week, Rick. Uh, And thank you so much for teaching us how pollination works. I'll admit I was wildly off base in what I thought it was, but in my defense, uh, the word pistol can mean something else. Uh, thank you so much for being on our show last week, Rick. Uh, and thank you so much for all your suggestions of the different theme months that we could do. Uh, I got to tell you, our calendar is a little full right now, and we probably won't get to do a full month called uh, Nazis, the Secret Heroes of World War II. But keep those ideas coming. <laughs> That runs right into my next one. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show, Rick. We were surprised uh, by your endorsement of Donald Trump on the show. We don't normally do political endorsements on the show, but uh, I guess, you know, we should we should be open to people's beliefs. And after kind of looking at the facts, I know we were upset at you at the time, but looking at the facts that you're a, a bigot and you hate women, we really, really um, think that Donald Trump is the candidate for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we're we're endorsing Rick's endorsement. <laughs> I'm saying Donald Trump is the candidate for it's someone candidate, as terrible as Rick. Rick. Yeah. Um, well, that explains why the, those theme months that he was suggesting. And, and finally, thank you so much for being on the show last week, Rick. Uh, quick correction: uh, there were many reasons for America's involvement in Vietnam, including the United States communist containment policy and the Gulf of Tonkin incident, but Bill Paxson's role as Chet Donnelly in the movie Weird Science turned out to not be one of those reasons. Uh, So sorry about that. Um, Can I throw in one, because I sensed a sort of mean streak in this? Uh, Thank you very much for being on the show, Rick. Uh, I'm sure that you are going to be a great guest, and uh, I'm sure none of this will happen. Uh, Yeah, that's the one I'm going to edit out. (laughs) <laughs> it's my edit. No, it's not. Is it You're not? on vacation. Oh, I'm, a, I'm on Dune. Damn it. Well, the thing is, Rick won't hear this until after he's on the show. So he's yeah. he might be riding high. Yeah, uh, gotcha. From his, from his guest appearance. <laughs> only to hear this episode and be like, man, they thought some really, really negative things about me. <laughs> we really, They really buried me the week yeah. after. These segments only work if the show ends up going well, though. Like, if the show really goes terribly, we'll probably have to take all this out. <laughs> Can you imagine, yes. like, just a terrible, like, Rick leaves halfway through and then he's like, ah, yeah, I thought those guys were my friends. I've always enjoyed talking to them. I like the podcast. 
That was a horrible experience, only to turn on the uh, the radio next week and just hear us berating him. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea, the image of him turning on some sort of 1940s radio. He's like, you know, after a little Orphan Annie, I think I'll check out. We love to watch. Yeah, well, you can uh, you can get those. They dock your iPad or iPod. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. I had no idea. So, fuck you. <laughs> Sorry, I got used. I, I apologize. I got used to telling Rick to go fuck himself. I just got into a weird headspace. <laughs> you got, you got into. I, I'm so angry at this past version of Rick that really hurt me. Yeah, um, it's it, once you say fuck you to one person a hundred times, it's so easy to say fuck you to the next person once. So uh, we are going to be talking about uh, Alien Resurrection, a movie that does not feature Bill Paxton. Uh, surprisingly. Why the hell not? Well, I don't know. Why don't we find out when we start talking about the movie? How do you feel about that, Peter? That's a great idea. I'll do the five second. Five second is Ripley's back, kind of. Uh, she finally gives birth to that alien queen. Alien queen gives birth to a human queen. All aliens die. Great job. So the 90 second recap version is Ripley's DNA sample is pulled from the prison from Alien 3 and is she is cloned and resurrected on uh, a military vessel 200 years after her death at the end of Alien 3 because of some science-y, YNC stuff. She has all of her memories, but she has a new body that is a uh, sort of alien-clone hybrid. And they're basically using her body as a husk to grow uh, an incubation chamber to grow a uh, hybrid queen alien for military applications. So this team of scientists uh, attached to a military ship full of marines is uh, meets up with a group of smugglers, pirate types, with Ron Perlman and the weird French dude that's in every other Junet movie and uh, Winona Ryder and a bunch of other guys, uh, Michael Wincott, and those guys come on board the ship uh, because of uh, of Winona Ryder's uh, secret plan to actually kill the alien. That was her plan all along. She uh, ends up causing a conflict between the smugglers and the space marines dash scientists. Uh, the aliens that have been uh, grown from Ripley's queen escape from their chamber 
And so the ship is now sort of a three-way battle between the Marines, the aliens, and the smugglers. The smugglers are joined by Ripley. Ripley basically they basically helps them fight through the ship. They gain some members. They lose some members like any horror movie. By the end, Ripley is confronted with the birth of her true daughter, which is a true human-alien uh, hybrid uh, who has a uh, human reproductive system. And uh, Ripley has to kill her, her child, her grandchild, however you want to see it. And uh, the crew escapes the ship before it blows up on their own ship. And they make it back to Earth. And uh, Earth is pretty. Yeah, that really is how it ends. Just, we did it for clouds. Because <laughs> they basically make Earth out to be a shithole. They literally say, Earth is a shithole. And then when they get there, like, eh, it looks kind of nice. We're gonna, we'll, we'll get into that. Um... Because that's that's a part of the movie I I don't know if it, I don't know if it works but I kind of want to talk about since this is a movie that we both have seen a bunch of times uh, which is somewhat rare on this show that both of us probably have a lot of recent experience I I, I did rewatch it for this podcast I kind of go through a thing every couple years where I watch all four alien movies so I have seen this movie a bunch of times I will start by saying my first experience with seeing this was in high school a couple years after it came out I watched all four. I thought that this movie was on par with Aliens as my favorite, which is exactly the type of opinion you're allowed to have when you're in high school because it's okay to be wrong then. And <laughs> then eventually you grow up and realize realize that maybe you didn't consider things properly. I thought it was better than Alien, uh, the first one, because of the time-tested the time tested thing of, well, there's more Aliens, so it's got to be better. Uh, as I got a little bit older and, and watched them more and more, I, I, I cycle between whether Alien and Aliens is the best one. And now I'm kind of at the point where I'm not sure whether Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection is better. I feel like Alien Resurrection has probably suffered the most upon every rewatch I do. Um, I still really like it quite a bit, but I feel like... Every time I watch it, my opinion of it goes down slightly. Not to it not being a movie I always enjoy watching, but in, in all fairness to Alien Resurrection, I, as a dumb asshole high schooler, put it on par with fucking Aliens. So, uh, going down from one of the best movies, best action movies of all time, uh, it's still, it's not that far of a drop. Yeah. I uh, had a similar experience, but I caught it in junior high, uh, and I, I watched the movie a ton, and I loved it as a kid, and um, as years went on, I caught it more on cable, and I was pretty, pretty into it, and then as the years went on, I started seeing more of the flaws, but I also started, that started being balanced by being more exposed to Jeunet as a filmmaker. We did Dune, I guess, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think this movie shows more of Junet's style than Dune shows of David Lynch. So this doesn't feel like a mercenary effort by a like a sweet French filmmaker who got you know caught up by the Hollywood machine. It feels more like uh, he took his style and he adapted it to a uh, a series that is very adaptable. I think all five Alien movies, all five of them have very unique approaches to the material. They de they deconstruct the core concept of Alien in different ways. And as I got a little bit older, I was like, yeah, some of this, some of these lines are kind of cheesy. Yeah, Winona Ryder is kind of annoying in this movie. But like that was balanced out by a sort of love for the comic book uh, approach to the material and Junet's sort of uh, art direction. 
and how that influences the movie. Yeah, and I should say the only other Janae movie I've seen is Amelie. Uh, which I, I really liked when I saw it, although that seems to be a movie that the internet has turned on greatly from when I from 2001 when it came out. But I haven't revisited it, so in my head it's still, still pretty good. Uh, he definitely brings a unique visual stamp to this movie, and that's especially what I responded to when I first saw the movie. Like, this felt, you know, so unique and different, and it it felt less... Again, these these are the thoughts of a dumb high schooler, but like less flat. Like, oh, he's doing all this cool stylized stuff, uh, where where the other movies were just kind of presenting their story uh, without much flash. But I think I think some of that flash makes it feel. I don't know what the right. I, I I almost hate using the word dated. Watching this one and watching the other three movies, this one feels the most like WWBTV inspired like like i said it has some very nice shots and very nice visualizations and clearly uh janae got to do what he wants but this this feels like the least cinematic of the four movies so it's it's a weird combination where i like a lot of the style but then sometimes it makes it feel i don't know cheap and cheesy i don't know what the right word is i think that the problem is um there's a subtle line between so this movie has let's talk about the photography so i think that the photography is shot in such a specific manner that there can be a thin line between a good deployment of the sort of fast cuts and uh, whipping camera movements michael bay gets a lot of shit for having like the swooping camera movements and the f- fast zoom ins and and the quick editing pace that he he has uh, he gets a lot of shit for that but like that's because he's deploying the technique poorly in most of those movies. In this movie, I feel like every bit of experimental camera work and the sort of quick cuts and the swooping the swooping camera movements is all super expressionist. And I think if you if you watched like City of Lost Children or Delicatessen, you could see more of that DNA that's popping through because he does a lot of these these strange sort of comic booky uh, extreme camera angles to. Um, make it to sort of give a, a emotional impact whereas I mean, it's not i don't think it's flash for flash sake so it doesn't feel cheap to me yeah i don't yeah ch- i guess cheap cheap is kind of the right word but i do like a lot of it it just feels like and i, I think that's a really tough line to thread is how much is too much and when to when to let the camera settle down and i'm not saying what scenes he should have shot more conventionally and what scenes he should have gone nuts with or been more experimental but you know, there's there's scenes that work really well, and then there's some scenes where it kind of feels like, all right, enough with the Dutch angles, or that's that's the problem with like line crossing is sometimes you just kind of start feeling it a little bit as a viewer, where it's like, okay, it's it's too much right now. Uh, I'll give you an example. I want to talk about this uh, this scene more once we actually start getting into some scenes. So the underwater scene I think is amazing, and as they're trying to escape. Uh, the egg sack or the membrane, that's amazing. Once they're on the ladder, it just all of a sudden kind of goes into, okay, stop. Stop what you're doing a little bit. It crosses from perfectly realized stylization to now you're detracting from the movie, if that makes sense. And um, I should note the I, the 
director of photography, the cinematographer is Darius Conge. But uh, yeah, he's worked with kind of all the great filmmakers of the late 20th century in America. Like he's worked with Woody Allen and The Night in Paris. Uh, he worked with David Fincher and Seven. It is strange sometimes to see this extreme sort of playful camera work in a series that's known for its grit and grime. And in like the first Alien, a lot of what a lot of people remember about it is that like it's very much like Star Wars in the sense that this feels like a lived-in dirty space. The ship from the from the first Alien, it's 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 very uh, industrial and it serves a purpose. And this ship, the military vessel, is sort of like that, and it serves a sort of function and a purpose. But there are little flourishes of uh, Junet's strange vision where sometimes the industrialness is is taken to like brutalist extremes so that he really gets to play with like strange angles uh in the frame like uh, i think that's where the set design and his vision really uh meld well where it stops being the movie the movie itself stops pretending like it's anything like the first alien like i said i think i think from a visual perspective i feel like this of the four has looks the most dated in in 2016 compared to the other three i don't know i feel like alien 3 is like a a movie that hasn't aged well visually like besides the cgi because i mean the cgi alien in alien 3 is famously terrible yeah and i don't really hold that against it i mean more um some of the grit and grime and the way it's shot feels very pointlessly depressive Whereas in this, it's almost like uh, just like the, the, the grime and the grit is, is more of just like a set dressing. I think Alien 3 has a lot of uh, photography in it that feels kind of like either leftovers from Aliens. It doesn't have like sort of, I don't know, I don't feel the sort of original voice in Alien 3. It's a very sad, depressing movie. And in that sense, it's like really brave to like follow up one of the most ass kicking movies of all time with this depressive movie about how heroes die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like three and four have aged about as well. See, I, I think three has gotten so much better with age. And I think I think that that dark, the dark, almost like meandering and thoughtful. And, you know, there's not that much alien fighting. There's a lot of just people sitting around and talking about fate and whether they deserve to live and the crimes that they've committed. And, you know, it, it feels, especially if you've seen the director's cut, it it feels like, like you said, I, I mean, I agree it's a wildly different swing from Alien 1 and Alien 2, but I think it feels more and more fresh each time I see it. Besides the terrible CGI, it doesn't really feel dated at all. And if anything, I feel like it. part of the reason that one, I think, has a growing reputation or has in the last few years, it feels more of its time now than it probably did in 1992. Two. The one yeah, thing I- it, it does feel, yeah, I could see that feeling. It feeling ahead of its time, especially now that we we know what Fincher is capable of, and we kind of know what his voice is, even though he's disowned a lot of that movie. They they always talk about how you know these these four movies are very unique for movie series because um, they all had very well respected directors with a specific artistic vision, and the movies kind of let those visions play out. And I think that's. I think that's 100% true, and I definitely think that, like, I like what they did with this movie. I like 
what Janae did with it. I just I feel like watching it now feels more less cinematic than watching the other three. I I yeah, I don't really know how to exactly react to that because I feel like it's cinematic in its own in its own way. It doesn't feel cheap and it doesn't feel like TV to me in the slightest. It feels very uh, meta and very aware. It's the only alien movie that you could really consider funny. Aliens has dad jokes in it where it's like, it's more of like a ha ha, the android did a funny thing. The In this, it's like uh, outright attempts at comedy like it just feels like a different movie and let's, I, I, I think let's, it, let's actually let's actually stop there because i want to talk about his attempts at comedy because some of that would be in my negative column for this movie in that the, the attempts to be kind of hip and slangy i think are really out of place for this series which would be fine if they pulled it off better than this now having said that there's some stuff that's really funny so if if we're talking about the um the instead of like a, a retina scanner it's the breath scanner or or dan hedea's arms those two things i will agree are very funny but he is he's like basically comic relief from frame one until his death dan hedea yeah he i mean he definitely likes to yell um, if if he was playing this character serious, then he is a terrible actor. I don't think he was. He's he's essentially playing the same character he played when he was Carla's husband on Cheers. Um, yeah, or or the character in um, he's sort of like yeah, yeah, exactly. He he's just this like sort of gruff, angry dude that just he's he's such a gifted comic performer. He gets so easily flustered. So I'll tell you a scene that I think is really really funny when the scientists are proudly showing off Brad Dorif. Uh, who was previously in Dune. And uh, who's great in this movie. He's amazing in this yeah. movie. I think it's one of his, his better performances. His best performance in his whole career is Exorcist, Exorcist 3. But uh, anyways, I'm getting off topic. There's a scene where the, the scientist, Brad Dorff, and the, the other guy are showing the <laughs> Ripley to Dan Hedaya. And, and they're like proudly touting that... Like all the things about it, and it, uh, all the things about her, and she's like, he's like, why does it have memories? <laughs> like he's just like he's basically just making fun of the movie right off the bat. Like, oh boy, am I thinking Termination? Like he's he's kind of thinking what the audience is thinking. Like, why did you bring her back? You shouldn't have done this to her. Like, why are you putting this poor woman through more turmoil? But yeah, I think that there's moments like that that are really funny where the movie has a sort of meta uh, quality to it. And I think a lot of that has to be Joss Whedon. See, I, I think, yeah, I think that stuff is very good. And I normally, I really like Joss Whedon's dialogue, but there are a lot of points in this movie, especially near the back half, that it feels like like, Dan Hedaya is great. There's a lot of funny moments. Ron Perlman has some good lines. The meta aspect in general is very is very fun in the way that they poke little holes at parts of the concept while still capitalizing on them. But then there there is so much clunky 90s dialogue. Anything that Winona Ryder says that's supposed to be funny is terrible. But even Sigourney Weaver, who is fantastic in this movie when they try to give her lines i don't blame her because i've seen ghostbusters so i know that she can be a very great uh comedic actress uh i don't think i've groaned at a line more than who do i have to fuck to get off this boat oh um, my god i love that line you, oh. that's that's gonna be our this is gonna be our dark city episode apparently uh just reversed because i love that line i love all of her her i'm so over this shit sort of late 90s stuff she's I think, amazing I think, I think some of it's good 
But, like, there's lines like that that feel like they could be good if they were in a better moment. I don't know. Again, I don't know if Whedon actually wrote that dialogue. But what that feels like to me and a lot of these and a lot of these lines feel like is someone trying to write Josh Whedon dialogue. Like, someone who doesn't know how to do it, who isn't as naturally gifted with creating these kind of clever and funny lines to comment and move along the plot. It, it feels like a, a faux Whedon line. Because it's out of place and it it's not funny and I yeah I I think I think there's a lot of lines like that that don't work for me at all and I think this would be movie would be better without them. I'm not saying that every attempt at jokes in this movie is funny, but I do. No, think... that's what you said. It's on the record. <laughs> but I do think here I'll, I'll point out one that it's not funny that happens immediately after the who the fuck do I who the hell do I have to fuck to get off the ship? I think that's a really funny line because Sigourney Weaver is a really gifted comedic actress and she gets to be everything in this movie. It's basically like her reward for being scared and weak in the first movie. Like in two, she got to be a badass. In three, she got to be sort of depressed Re- and world reluctant, weary. reluctant badass. Yeah. And then in, in three, she got to be sort of world weary and kind of over it. In four, she's like over it, but so hyper capable that like it feels almost like it's commenting on himself where she's just like, hey guys, I've been through this before and I've murdered all these aliens before. And so the moments where she's not funny, like the like the lab scene and the end of the movie where she's killing the, the baby, they hit harder because you could tell that something's broke through to her. But there's a line right after there's a line right after she has the, the, the who do I have to fuck to get off this ship line where Ron Perlman basically gives a awesome line reading for a bad line where she says, she says who, do, who the fuck do I have to fuck to get off the ship or whatever? And he says, I, I can't get you off the ship, but I can get you off or something. Yeah. Like he's basically saying, like, he's basically saying, I'll make you come, but I can't get you off the ship. And like, you can't have two of those lines stacked because it ruins the first line. Agreed. And I think, but and I, that line's terrible too. And if I, if I'd started writing down all of the terrible attempts at humor, um, in the last half hour of this movie, I, I think I think this movie has a lot of final act problems. I think after the water underwater scene, the movie um, gets progressively worse. I think the first two acts are very good to great. And then I feel like the third act has a ton of problems, which actually is reinforced by the research I did and that they rewrote that third act so many different times. Whedon himself did uh, either five or eight drafts of it, and they ultimately went with something different because the amount of clunky dialogue and bad attempts at humor in that last half got really grating. So I stopped I stopped writing them all down. The reason why when Whedon hits those dialogue points or hits those funny moments with his dialogue he's he's not doing it separate from the situation they are funny lines in reference to whatever is going on stuff like the ron perlman line especially and there's a bunch of other ones feels like they are so removed from everything that's going on it's just someone trying to go hey Make sure these guys are quippy. They need to be street smart and cool. And that that really detracts from everything else going on instead of being additive, which most of Whedon's dialogue, I think, for the most part is. And I have I have certain problems with the way Whedon writes, not just dialogue. Like there's a there's a, a theme running through this movie that because I think I liked this movie a lot more than you did. Um, there's a theme running through this movie where basically Sigourney Weaver uh, and um, Winona Ryder are supposed to identify with each other because, spoilers, Winona Ryder is an android and Sigourney Weaver is some sort of hybrid alien thing. And so they're both human on the outside, not human on the inside, and searching for their humanity. 
And through this situation, they sort of find out, um, they find their, you know, their humanity and they get to accept more of where they came from and blah, 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 blah. And it's like a theme that could have been palatable in a different source, but that's like a very Whedon thing to be like searching through humanity through sci-fi tropes and smashing together like a bunch of different sci-fi or fantasy elements. Like that, that's basically a lot of Buffy, right? Is where it's like the yeah. witch and the werewolf have a conversation about how it feels to be powerful. He, he's really, he's really interested in, in just embracing the ridiculousness of sci-fi concepts and then trying to pull some sort of humanity out of it. And that's, but that's something that I think is really misplaced here. And that's like, that's, that's, that screams Whedon to me. Yeah. I, I agree that it's misplaced here. And I think it's given lip service. Um, we might as well talk about it now. I think Winona Ryder's arc in general is so background that when she reveals that she's a um, android, which I think the movie thinks is supposed to be a big shocking reveal, the the whole thing feels more compulsory. Like, oh, yeah, we needed a android in this movie and it doesn't feel game changing. It just feels like, oh, now that we know that you're a hybrid, you can have this conversation with Ripley and you can unlock some stuff that we need you to unlock. Like, it doesn't feel like there's much there there to start digging into deeper themes about what it means for her to be an android because the movie doesn't give us enough time with her for the switch to make a difference, in my opinion. Like, yeah, why she, can't she just be like a scrappy hacker? There wasn't enough characterization of her f- to give any of the moments that you're talking about where they try to add weight to her plight. It didn't resonate in the same way that uh, Ripley's plight absolutely does resonate in this movie, I think, very well. Yeah. Um, And I don't want to get into Ripley just yet because I'm going to have, like, a lot to say about how awesome (laughs) her character is in this. Yeah. Um, And I kind of want to take a step back and talk about something that you said about I think that you like this movie way more than me. That might be true. I want to be very clear how much I like this movie. And how I consider it, like, again, I I love watching this movie. And now I'm kind of second guessing some of the stuff I want to talk about because a movie, I think one of the issues with uh, talking about a movie that you've seen for close to 20 years a bunch of times, the the stuff that I love has been present for the last 20 some years. And the stuff that I don't like feels more new to me. So I feel like I may be falling into the trap where... The stuff that's fresh on my mind in this movie is stuff I've noticed in the last couple years upon rewatching it, where, like, the stuff that's great, yeah, that was the stuff I loved from the get-go. That's why I thought it was on par with fucking Aliens. So I do want to mention a couple things that I love about this movie, and then we can get into Ripley or whatever else we need to talk about. Uh, the alien design in this movie, every point where the aliens are around, I think is the best of any of the other alien movies. I think the Queen's design, I think the drone's design, everything with the exception of the hybrid is done so well. And every use of CG for the most part is extremely convincing, especially for fucking 1997. It's, it's a 20 year old movie. It hasn't aged as well as Starship Troopers. I don't think Starship Troopers, I think is the gold standard for CGI that has aged. Well, it's like that and Jurassic Park. But this movie, the CGI looks really good for being almost 20 years old. The, the creatures all, and, and a lot of it is like either uh, well-chosen deployment of the effect. One of the problems with CGI a lot of times is that characters look weightless. When is the time in the movie where we get the best look at one of the aliens? It's when they're underwater. <laughs> Yeah. So, so like the close-up insert shots that they use of the actual model look 
fan of fucking yeah classic. and the the, egg, the eggs uh the egg sack aliens the you know their first form every practical effect in this movie makes the aliens look uh ridiculously scary and now the alien was always effective in all these movies but holy cow like they all the practical effects and the set design and the creepy way that even like um they're encased in their hive stuff at the at the end of the movie like it is hands down i think the best deployment of uh the alien creature uh from an effect standpoint yeah i i agree i think the aliens look terrific i think the queen reminds me of the queen from phase four i think they were clearly drawing off some sort of insect designs for this because they had to make a a massive alien queen the likes of which that they hadn't done since aliens like does alien 3 have a big big buffo i think it's just a lot of little guys right the one that it's just the one that kind of the dog on the features of the dog i think i think in the director's cut it might be a cow yeah and and i I think the aliens all look terrific the scene where uh brad dorif is sort of teasing the alien and making fun of the alien which uh and the alien scares the shit out of him and he burns it with the carbon freezing (laughs) yeah that's one that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie yeah i I love i love that scene brad dorif is great um and the aliens are so um moist yeah like but just they're just dripping in like otherworldly goo it feels like um the way that pays off and the way they ultimately escape those cells are like brilliant again i think i think the first couple acts of this movie are with the exception of a few moments pretty unimpeachable uh, for the most part, I, I I love all that stuff. Yeah, I think the you're right. The third act has problems. Um, if we're gonna take if we can take a slight step back and talk about let's let's knock out the uh, let's knock out the alien human uh, alien uh, human hybrid thing. Yeah, let's. Um, okay, so I have I have uh, mixed opinions on this. As I somebody too. that really likes this movie because in in one in one effect. I think that it is objectively hideous and it doesn't have the elegance of, of the other ones. And I think that, like, the fact that it's it's played as more of a confused puppy or a confused baby than it is played as a vicious, mature monster is really interesting. It's a really interesting direction for the series to, to, to have you look for humanity in this thing, but also look for terror in it. It feels like a universal horror monster in that way, like a like a Frankenstein, but like have the the dials uh, switched way more towards horror. <laughs> yeah, I I think um, that's actually not the part of the third act that I have any problems with. Most of my problem with the third act has everything to do with the rest of the human characters, or their escape, or what their goal is, or what they're trying to prevent. We can talk about that later. Conceptually, the idea that the alien starts giving birth to a human alien hybrid and only has a womb let's 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 put the nitpicky thing aside where i don't know what evolutionary benefit it would have for this particular species um i guess not having to have hosts but does does it just get one baby every few months like humans humans have a distinct genetic disadvantage to these aliens these aliens can basically especially if they're trying to build a invasion force yeah the best and, and assuming that they're actually humans on earth but like a having a queen that can pump out um, eggs is seems like that's the yeah. I think I think the disadvantage the they're at is that it, the eggs can't transmogrify to use Calvin and Hobbes language uh, into the alien creatures without hosts. So that that's a disadvantage that they they don't work in a vacuum and they're not their own you know 
uh, circle of life. They need something else to be inserted. But I'm saying that they could drop a bunch of eggs on Earth and then have that kick off the invasion. That's probably better than have some sort of um, alien that doesn't even have the alien tongue. He has like a sort of human-y tongue. Yeah, he's got to have a nice day button. (laughs) Um, And a little, little pot belly. But I still like it. I like. I love this. The birthing scene. It's so fucking weird and creepy with the hive, and the webbing. And again, a, a great version of the alien queen and Brad Dorif. And Brad Dorif just kind of describing what's going on in a way oh, that I didn't. Love him. Yeah, that that didn't feel obtrusive or like unnecessary to me. It didn't feel like someone just spouting um, exposition. It felt like he's gonna die, but he doesn't care because he's super psyched to see uh, all of his efforts pay off in these crazy ways. And I love, I love the birthing scene. I love what ends up happening to it. I love the idea that now there's this alien who has this connection to Ripley that Ripley wants nothing to do with. It's kind of the inverse of aliens where Ripley takes on a motherly role and kind of forces this uh, newt out of her shell where now it's the opposite. The hybrid wants something to do with Ripley and is trying to, you know, make her a part of its life and she wants nothing to do with it. And I think that the death scene and how they end up killing it and the, that's just fucking cool as shit the concept of the alien getting sucked out of a pinhole size crack into space and then the execution of that all that stuff is great my big problem with it is just i think the alien design is or the the hybrid alien design is goofy as shit and really hard to take seriously so everything it, it, else surrounding it works great the concept the bookends of the birthing scene and the death scene it's just when he's kind of wandering around like a fucking reject from teenage mutant ninja turtles the secret of the ooze token <laughs> razor going mama that you know that's where that's the part that doesn't work i can excuse a little bit of a bad creature design in a movie that excels at everything else creature related and the the bookends of it and the concept work fine for me i'm able to ignore for the most part, the uh, Tokon Razor looking for their mom. That's a uh, hideous comparison. I didn't feel I didn't feel that, but now that you've said it, I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> it really was all I could think about this time, and I never th- like it. Actually, kind of looks like the two of them combined. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a Ripley alien and uh, two freaks from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hybrid. I feel like the creature was conceptually stupid, but. And the wide shots of it was stupid, but I was fine with its sort of weird kill me skull. So what do you, um, what do you mean? What do you mean that it was consent? Like you don't like the idea? Like I don't I, get why. I, I, don't get why I, I mean, like I, it works emotionally to have Ripley have to kill her hybrid alien child. I think, but uh, intellectually, the concept behind the hybrid thing doesn't work for me. I don't get Well, why. but you remember, it's it's a crazy mad scientist. It's not like the alien decided that this is what they were going to evolve into. So I think from that perspective, in the same way, there's something different about Ripley, which actually um, is an advantage in that she can heal herself and do all these other alien type things. If the aliens were perfect killing machines and perfect, as everyone always uh, says in the first couple movies, then it makes sense that any attributes that the alien would take from Ripley would not be evolutionary advantageous uh, for for their species. Now, just because Brad Dorif is like, this is amazing, I, I disagree with him. But he's I don't. A, he's an unreliable character. Yeah. So when I when I when I say I can be nitpicky at that this is an evolutionary advantage, um, I'm not nitpicking the movie because I don't know necessarily that the movie thinks it is. 
Brad Dourif's character sure as shit does, but, you know, I can nitpick him all day long. <laughs> Yeah. Well, here's your problem. You're crazy. <laughs> and this is why you think this. Okay, so while we're talking about the sort of alien hybrid uh, between Sigourney Weaver and the aliens, uh, we should discuss the lab scene wherein Sigourney Weaver, who knows she's some sort of lab experiment, discovers just how bad the lab experiment was. She discovers a lab where uh, she sees all the failed versions of her. I believe seven failed versions of her because she's number eight and it is a i think it's one of the most potent mini horror stories that this movie could have pulled off and it's something that i wish the movie had more of this sort of uh stomach churning freak of nature style horror because it's something that the series has never done before but it's taking this cloning concept or this this you know genetic modification concept and showing you what happens when the process doesn't go perfectly. Aaron, what did you think of the the clone discovery of the clones and the destruction of the the clone lab scene? Perfect visceral horror. Everything about the scene is perfect. There's the cre- whoever designed all those different creatures probably still has nightmares to this day because Are all these Stan Winston creature effect shop uh, movies we should I probably... mean you would think our research would have yielded an answer to that if you wait um, three seconds I can I can come up with that we can edit all this up um, I don't think that we should edit out our research process Peter I <laughs> no I, I think I think it was Stan Winston you can confirm or deny every single one is different and creepy in its own way and that that's the part that feels like they they jumped over the biggest of hurdles because it'd be one thing to show seven variations on the same thing. But they have like the one with the with the mouth on one side where like their faces are fused. They have the one that is saying like kill me, which I can't even really describe it. It's just like it's like from every square inch of skin and body part changes depending on whether it's alien or not. Um, And especially made more creepy by the fact that the one part that's not combined that way is the face, which is basically all Sigourney Weaver saying, please kill me. There's, there's a one with like the person body and the alien head. I mean, one of these individually would have, would have made you feel disgusted on a primal level and they hit the ball out of the park seven times. Yeah, I I, I love the scene. Not just I should, because uh, it, before you before you go any further, I should say uh, for our listeners especially, a ball out of the park is a sports reference. It's <laughs> it's for baseball specifically. Uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think you put it. I think you put it wonderfully. And I think that the the power of this scene is that it's not just a Scooby Doo. We walked through a haunted house scene. It's um, something that tears Ripley apart in a way that we haven't seen yet. Where she feels guilt that she was, you know, like a survivor's guilt that she's the one. This is all unspoken, by the way, which is part of its power she has uh, to me i read it as like she has survivor's guilt that she was the one that made it through she has anger about you know the sort of anger that you feel when someone who is um, related to you is is been harmed um she feels manipulated that this is you know basically this was this could have been her and uh yeah the scene where she just torches the lab as a mercy killing is really really cathartic because at that point you're just like oh my god this isn't a life the only one that can talk 
is uh, begging for death. Yeah, you um, I mean, you probably thought the first time you watched it, like you need to burn this all down before it occurred to the character to do the same thing. Although I do kind of now want to see the version that is the Scooby-Doo version where at the end they get to the end, the seventh hybrid that's Scarney Weaver saying, kill me. And they rip that mask off and it's Dan Hedaya's character back. (laughs) (laughs) I told you to get rid of these clones. (laughs) You meddling firefly rejects. Uh, So can we talk about the illegal? So actually that's a, that's a good segue (laughs) because I don't want to leave this part to the end because I don't want to end on a negative note for a movie that I really do like. But I guess here's my big problem with the movie. At the end of the movie, for the most part, they make the aliens the main antagonist. And it kind of starts that way with Dan Hedaya's character again doing he's a he's he's a military commander. He they now work not for the company, uh, but for um, just the military or a branch of the military. And obviously he he he's getting the doing these illegal genetic experiments and that's why they need the smugglers in the first place. And just because it's part of a film series doesn't mean that it needs to follow the same template. But I think one of the um underlying parts of the Alien series that I love is that the aliens are never really the main antagonists. They are in the sense that like the creatures in Jurassic Park are, but it's not aliens that caused the disaster they're just being they're doing what they do and it's it's the bungling of humans and other people that have really caused all this issue and that's kind of been the the through line through all these movies and i feel like this one upends it a little bit because it makes the uh, dan hedaya and the stuff they're doing a little bit more cartoonishly evil they they have a little bit more mustache twirling than they previously did i think and i think because all those people die and now it's a race to save Earth from the aliens killing people on Earth. It then pivots to the aliens really being a weird antagonist that everyone's trying to stop from doing something. I think that's my biggest problem with the movie. I feel like there's some there's some hallmarks of the alien series of uncaring corporation who is using the, these people's lives. And at the end of the day, they need to escape the situation that this all-powerful organization has caused. I think that's missing from this movie, and I think it's to the movie's detriment because that was always one of my favorite parts of the first few. Well, I think this movie has that. I mean, it's the the, the sinister implications for what happens if our heroes don't succeed are identical to what's happening in Aliens, is it not? In Aliens, well, no, no, in, Aliens it's a, in Aliens, the corporation is trying to smuggle aliens within humans and then get the, and then bring them in for research and for uh, future warfare developments. That's exactly what the military is trying to do in this case. Well, but the military is not. Dan Hedaya's character has gone rogue and is doing all this stuff under the table. Yeah, but it's assumed it's assumed that there's applications that they can pull out of researching these aliens. So it's basically like a microcosm of aliens. Kind of, but I but I think the fact that he's like this lone wolf doing these unauthorized experiments, even if the military was going to use them later, I don't know what the fake reality would be if if he succeeded. 
But I'm saying that him being this lone wolf, it's done for one reason. It's done so that there's a reason for these space pirates to have to deliver these bodies to incubate the aliens in. But I think that takes away a little bit from it. And I think that the fact that all all that stuff has gone by the wayside at the end and they're just trying to stop the now alien creatures from getting to Earth, not from someone having control of the alien creatures that they may not be able to uh, control long term, but literally just we need to stop these monsters from getting to our families. That is a much less satisfying enemy for the for the finality of this movie. Now, the aliens a lot of times did become the antagonist, but it was more of we need to get out of here because of what the company has put us through. I don't know. There's just something there's something that doesn't click with me as well when it's all of a sudden the aliens feel like the main antagonists. I, I guess I just don't really see the the objection. I find I find that sort of roughly synonymous with what happens in aliens. I don't I don't I guess I don't entirely entirely understand. I mean they're they're trying to escape from the ship that the aliens are on the loose eventually, but like the reason they're on the loose and it's out of hand uh, it's because you can't control these aliens, which is the same reason that things got on the loose and out of hand on uh, LV-426. To me, it just reads as is them pulling elements from previous movies in a sort of pastiche way, which I think that's something that probably annoys people as well, but do- doesn't uh, annoy me. Yeah, I, get, I, I feel like one of the through lines of the movie has been like, there is this faceless organization who has these nefarious purposes. So I think changing that to, and that even if, even if you escape these aliens, the end of the day, the company is the main antagonist. I feel like the lone wolf, crazy scientist going off the reservation, which leads to genetic experiments that are now in danger of killing innocent people on earth is just less satisfying and not in line with, I think what, all three alien movies does very well in setting up what the true problem is. Is that more concise? Does that make more sense? Again, you may disagree with what I'm saying, but yeah, I, just... I guess I, I, guess, I guess I just disagree. I feel like it's it's not troubling to me at all. I get, I, I think I get your point. Um, it's not it's not troubling. It's just less satisfying to me. My problems with the third act are more more that I start to not understand how the mad scientist plan is is going to pivot. I don't entirely understand the meaning behind the yeah the alien hybrid baby you know, on a more conceptual level, uh, and I don't entirely understand. Like, there's certain mechanics of how action sequences work at the end that feel contrived to me, um, whereas earlier they didn't feel contrived to me, or they felt like so awesome that the fact that they were contrived is fine. The scene where the alien uh, is in the gets aboard the Betty and, like, closes the door so they can leave, but doesn't kill Winona. Winona has time to escape, and then uh, she just murders the uh, De Stefano, the, the Raymond Cruz's character, aka Tuco. He just kind of goes out like a lamb to the slaughter because there's like the sort of mechanics of those moments. Um, sort yeah, they of let a me. lot of people. They let a lot of people live, and Tuco's so funny because they introduce him in the last third. Anyways, it's like, well, we're gonna let all these people live. Yeah, why don't you? Hey, but this they, guy's here. Yeah, they they didn't kill. <laughs> they killed the 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 woman who was dating Michael Wincott. Which, by the way, I'm, uh, tell me what you think of my my pet theory on Michael Wincott that he is a okay actor with a great actor's voice. He's great and a, and a great look. Yeah, like, like he sh- he should be doing cartoon work all over the place. He he should be he should be a real space pirate because he would be very intimidating. I think. 
that voice, man. Like if that yeah. comes over the receiver and you'll just do whatever that he says, right? But uh, Michael Wincott has this this gravelly, amazing <laughs> voice, but it doesn't feel self-conscious at all. It just feels like it comes straight from his being. Uh, and uh, it, his, his being is Marlboro Lights. His being is Marlboro Lights. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Michael Wincott is great. I want to do at least throw out. He's not in the movie very much. He gets murdered. And then he has a, a girlfriend who is uh, not developed at all, except for that Michael Wincott likes her feet. She also gets murdered. And I'm realizing something about this movie. Yeah, they let a lot of people live and they don't kill anybody Except for um, the guy with dreads, who was Christy. Uh, he uh, and I had to look him up because he looked semi-familiar. And I, when he dies, it's uh, somewhat affecting. When Winona dies, it's somewhat affecting, and then they take it back. But like killing characters we just have met and don't really care about. Like uh, I feel like Leela Norser gets murdered uh, after we we get like one great scene with him, where Sigourney Weaver again uh, MVP of this movie basically explains how the the uh, incubation of the alien works and how he already has the alien inside him and he's screwed and then Leland Orser just gets to be a nervous Leland Orser for the rest of the movie when he yeah gets if you if you need a guy who has not accepted the reality of the situation and is still is still dealing with the first stage of grief denial get Leland Oster because yeah. he has a great he is great at not accepting what's going on <laughs> <laughs> he's a real hero at that yeah yeah um, it feels like there's like a studio executive somewhere who's like okay so he sees the situation and he's like i can't believe this and they're like we got it there's only one page on this and next card <laughs> and it's leland oster uh, he's so good um yeah. but he's already kind of a dead man walking raymond cruz is kind of like you don't care about him he starts off as a uh, kind of against the crew and then he never really earns himself his way back when Winona dies you're kind of like well she's annoying as fuck which I guess we should probably go into Winona now so like the fact that so many are alive at the end it's kind of like feels almost like they loved their little proto firefly crew so much that <laughs> they didn't want to kill a lot of them yeah Christy is the only one that dies in the last act that's like it's like oh I kind of like that guy um, but yeah, do you want to talk about Winona Ryder real quick? Because I, I think we both had similar problems with, yeah, with her. I, and I, I, I love Winona Ryder as an actress, I should say. This is just a, a strange role for her. Yeah, I just, I don't, um, and again, I don't think it's her fault. Because I don't I, either. I think she does a great job with the material, more or less. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily think that. But I don't think that she was given good material to work with. I feel like she's not, I mentioned this earlier, that she's not really developed into anything. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I love her. She's a great actress. I love a ton of movies that she's been in. In most of those movies, one of the main reasons I love it is because of how good she is in those movies. This just feels like a case of miscasting and not being given anything to work with at all. So, um... I so disagree. I think that she's perfectly cast. Damn it, you said we were going to agree about this part, Peter. (laughs) And I said I didn't want to talk about Winona. (laughs) I think that... I don't think she's miscast at all. I think that it's just a bad role. I think that the role is written as a angsty android... Uh, who's younger than a lot of the crew and this angsty android is asking sort of existential questions and is sort of pissed off at everybody. The role is bad and she brought angsty Winona Ryder to it, which is fun in Beetlejuice, but not fun in Beetlejuice and fun in Heathers. It's not fun here. Yeah, I don't think she has much. Again, I, I think she probably doesn't have much of a character to latch on to. So 
I agree the dialogue's bad and she has a hard time making what's there work because there's just not much probably for her to grasp onto. She has the most thankless role in the movie, which is basically yeah. she gets to walk around. She's basically adding a B plot to the movie. The A plot is aliens escape. Everybody has to get off the ship and survive. The B plot to the movie that they add is one that no one wants to explore because it's boring where she's like sneaking into the ship to try and kill the alien uh, and then she discovers that Scorny Weaver's already given birth to the alien. It's just boring. So then her role for the rest of the movie is basically like treating Sigourney Weaver like a freak and asking Sigourney Weaver existential questions that the audience could not give less of a shit about. Nobody cares. Like, how do you live with yourself is one thing that she asks to Sigourney Weaver. And she's just like, I don't know. I just live, which just yeah, makes you I, like Sigourney Weaver I've been Sigourney around Weaver for more. two weeks. <laughs> like, I haven't had time to get there. Like two don't, two week olds don't have existential crises. Okay? Yeah, don't worry. I'll be depressed after we land on Earth. Don't worry yeah. about it. So yeah, I'm not saying it's her fault. I'm just saying everything about it. It's poorly written. It doesn't work. And and whatever Winona was trying to do with the role that she was given didn't didn't work out. And I agree. Um, I think the angsty '90s stuff is is appropriate because they did write it like that. But it doesn't it doesn't mesh well with what the rest of the movie is doing. I, I feel like this is probably a, well, this is definitely a much bigger point, but I feel like the 90 isms that a lot of these movies injected age really poorly and stand out in a way that maybe the eighties and seventies ones don't. Um, the other one that feels like really like a studio note is like, I love the basketball scene, but just having basketball to be that much of a part of this movie uh, feels, feels super weird. Like, it feels like they got a studio note that just said, you know, people like basketball. Make the alien movie have some hoop dreams. I, um, <laughs> um, I, yeah, like, it, it, like, like it's done really well because it's, you know, yeah, Sigourney Weaver's so great moving that ball around her and and squaring off against Ron Perlman. And and P.S. I don't normally ship people or uh, ship people, but I want uh, I want Sigourney Weaver and Ron Perlman to be a thing in real life. <laughs> Um, those two are made for each other. They are made for each other. The let me throw something out, Aaron. Um, what movie came out a year before uh, Alien Resurrection in 1996? Space Twister. Jam. <laughs> uh, so maybe the studio saw Space Jam and they were like, "People, people want basketball in space." Yeah. Um, um, no, I, I think the, it, best, it, the basketball it, scene is fine because it's really annoying when movies have throwaway sports scenes and they make you bother learning the mechanics of a new sport when you're like, can't they just be playing a version of, of basketball? Like, uh, I, I agree. I just think, like I said, I think the scene works fine. But just the focus on basketball and the fact they have like that old gym rack for the basketballs that you had in your elementary school gym. It just feels it feels very 90s. That and uh, that and Winona Ryder's character saying we fried all our modems. <laughs> and by the way, the basketball rack thing, it's because once you perfect something, you don't touch it ever again. Yeah, but you feel like they have like a futuristic shoot that shot out basketballs when they needed a new one instead of just yeah roll this in from coach's office um, uh, and i love how the basketball scene isn't her playing basketball against somebody else it's her uh pummeling people with a basketball and then eventually shooting a hoop from behind her back which yeah you know she made I, yeah which i love when they don't cut away during stuff like that like they either use some trickery to wire it in or sigourney weaver actually uh hit that basket which is like 
pretty awesome. Uh, I wonder how many takes it took. Uh, is she is she good at basketball? Do we know this about Scorny <laughs> Weaver yet? Uh, I don't know, but I know that she did make it, and Ron Perlman almost didn't say his next line because he was so amazed. That's awesome. Besides the basketball and the modem line and the fact that the characters are super into Soundgarden, I think besides those 90s hallmarks, I think the movie does a really good job and I th- of actually showing the passage of time from maybe not the passage of time, but the advancement of technology and systems in the 200 years since Ripley was around. I think that's really hard to do when you're starting with a futuristic, unknowable world to your audience. I think it can be difficult to successfully communicate that things have changed in the last 200 years. And I think this movie does a really good job with that. From the opening scenes especially, where everyone feels like they have a more sense of control over the aliens and no one at the beginning sees them as a threat, everything feels less put together and everything feels like we got this in a way that I think successfully communicates the passage of time. Yeah, and they and, and, and speaking for the scientists, if you could if you grew something from the start and committed yourself over the course of I don't know years to this project and then you get this thing in a cage and you have 100% control over it, why would you be scared of it, you know? You you feel like you're a god over this this creature. So the fact that they're sort of teasing the alien is some is a touch that I really love, especially when they have someone as creepy as Brad Dorif doing it because you're like this guy actually would like get a lot of enjoyment out of uh, making fun of this alien. And it, it just feels um, even even the joking breath identifier aside, it feels more advanced than the first couple alien movies and I know that the second alien movie had a time jump as well but I think that was easier to show because all you ever saw was this basically this tanker in space so you didn't really see any of the other structures beside it. This, this does feel like yeah they have a better handle on the technology of how they're going to control the alien. They just don't realize what it's going to do because they don't have the direct experience. This feels like 200 years in the future, which can be super meaningless when it's already starting in the future. And I think they do a good job there. So here's, there's a little moment uh, of uh, futureness that I think some people would probably hate, but I loved. And it's the scene with the whiskey cube where he just puts it I mean, it I in like your... anything whiskey related, so I, <laughs> I loved it. It's kind of cheating. Um, yeah. <laughs> you just, just drool thinking about whiskey so you forget uh, the mechanics of the scene yeah there's a there's a scene where dan hadaya melts this whiskey cube and it's in this sort of like space astronaut packaging i love that because that's kind of like a wink that sorry even though it's the future and all that they still have like practical concerns they were sent out here with rations and troops and they were stationed out here it's kind of like a, a nice wink to they're not floating in zero G. They're 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 living on a spacecraft that's supposed to serve a purpose. Well, and it kind of calls back to the original in the sense that these are just people doing their jobs, which the the first one was so great at. Patton Oswald had this great essay about how the first Alien movie was really revolutionary because it kind of showed that space is a job, which was kind of new for 1979. And I think this is kind of a reference or a pastiche of that. They're not doing the same job, but no one's that excited that, oh, look at the aliens. Like, they work in space, and this is their job, and they they pass the time just like anyone else would at their job. Yeah, feeling um, feeling your, your, your co-passenger's feet and playing basketball. Yep, I mean, that's how I spend my days at work. Um, <laughs> I work at a weird place, the government. Anyway. You're, you're a podiatrist for the NBA. Uh, yeah. Thanks for telling everyone that. Everyone's going to want to have me rub their feet. I second guess that joke midway through. I also don't think podiatrist means foot doctor. 
I'm pretty sure it's foot doctor. Oh, it is. Oh, I was thinking of podiatrist. Yeah, podiatrist is true. Edit out on me correcting myself when I nope, was right. That's the funniest part. You son of a bitch. Yeah, we, we wouldn't want someone listening and be like, man, I really liked Peter's opinions on the movie, but he doesn't know what kind of doctors work with feet. <laughs> so Sexy doctors. I have to really second guess some things. One other little thing that I really like about the movie and it's such a minor moment but as long as i I did want to mention it there's that moment where they get uh where the where the space crew gets confronted by uh the military officers because they discover that uh winona rider's android has been gallivanting about the ship and there's a part where a guard pokes ron perlman in the back with his gun and he grabs the gun out of uh, his hand, tells him to knock it off and throws the gun back at the guard. It's so good because it hasn't escalated yet to violence. He's just like, don't you fucking touch me. Yeah, that's my favorite 10 seconds of the movie. Yeah, there's a a lot of like funny little Ron Perlman lines because he's supposed to be kind of an asshole in this movie more so than usual where he's just kind of this like cocky asshole you still love. And there's a scene early in the movie where he's just like, fucking around with a knife and he drops it into the leg of uh one of his co uh one of his, his uh co-smugglers and I think, I think co-workers is even if you're co-workers. doing something illegal it's still co-workers <laughs> they all have a job to do they probably all have the same dental plan um it may be no dental plan but that's the same if they all don't have a dental plan the dental plan is a a dentist robot that's in the back corner and one of them used it and now nobody uses it because it's just covered in blood and teeth <laughs> their, their dental plan is trade your teeth for gold because <laughs> they're they're pirates oh they're space pirates oh i just thought they had very supportive parents uh, you you were incorrect, <laughs> but uh, he drops this knife into the leg of his one of his coworkers, and the coworker <laughs> doesn't notice because he is uh, handicapped from the waist down, and it's it's kind of a funny little scene to show like how bored these people are, and to show that they are morally not so hot. And there's a scene a little bit later where they're all kind of like entering the military ship they're basically having their weapons taken away from them and like half of them sneak guns on and uh it's super funny because they're just sort of like wisecracking and just like talking past these guards because the the police in this movie or the sorry excuse me the military in this movie are essentially these limp-wristed green super green recruits like they don't they're kind of ineffectual at stopping anything Anytime that they actually have to face off against the alien, they kind of are frozen and get murdered. And it is very interesting. Oh, I, one of them literally gets frozen and murdered. Yep. <sighs> Accidental puns are the best, Aaron. Yeah, and so, anything that you don't need to work for is the best. <laughs> and, and so they kind of just, the, the, the Marines just are not capable of dealing with these guys. There's, Christy basically takes out all but one of them when they try and arrest them. And, Ron yeah, and they get the last one with ricochet bullet, which is as eye rolling as Ron Perlman throwing the gun is cool. I, I liked that shot because it was basically the I liked that shot because it's, it's basically the movie saying like, hey, this is like a comic book movie. This is no more yeah. ridiculous than what would be in like a Marvel comic. Yeah, it didn't it didn't bother me. It's just silly. It's just, yeah. It, I, an eye roll doesn't mean uh, doesn't mean negative. Oh, <laughs> just means. Oh, <laughs> like, OK, guys. 
the the one final thing I want to talk about, uh, which will just be very quick, is that uh, one thing I think this movie does really good, or at least it's very interesting conceptually, even if I think some of it breaks down a little bit, is the idea of where aliens had a um, super professional crew go in and try to confront the aliens, the way that this turns it on their heads and makes the military completely incompetent while making uh, kind of a ragtag group of smugglers have to deal with the alien threat, which I think is a nice uh, twist on on the second movie. Yeah, and these, these smugglers who are, uh, if they know about what their plan is at all, they're objectively evil. Uh, I get the sort of sense that the lead guy knew what was happening, Christy knew what was going on, but not necessarily Ron Perlman. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem is that it doesn't... This is where the smugglers kind of break down, is that I guess it doesn't matter to me whether they're evil or not, because besides, I don't think their characterization is strong enough for me to care or root for them, unlike another character in this movie who is fucking awesome. Yeah, I I, I, I agree. They are they are just sort of like badasses, and they become anti-heroes very, very quickly. They're more Snake Plissken types, where you're like, Snake Plissken's probably done some horrible things. And the fact that they're so good at killing in this movie, and they're so ready to kill, so much more ready to kill than the Marines, probably means that they've murdered so many people. Anti-heroes, bad guys, like, there's nothing there to root for or root against. Like, all of them could have died, or all of them could have survived, and it wouldn't matter to me, I guess. Yeah, but let's talk about the best character in the movie, the person that we are rooting for... Sigourney Weaver's Ripley once again. Uh, and like you mentioned earlier, Peter, in a completely different mode that she has has been in in any of the other movies. And I think I think much like each director of these movies gives a different vision to um, what everything looks like and how everything uh, feels. It's, it's great that Sigourney Weaver has basically got to play a different character in all four of them while still feeling like it's all part of the same core that has just progressed throughout these stories. Yeah, that was uh, that was something I was going to sort of dive into. Is that yeah, she becomes she goes from sort of a, a easygoing but professional woman in a very masculine environment who's treated with respect by more or less by her peers. And then in the second one, she sort of has an emotional uh, come to Jesus moment where she realizes that she's essentially lost her life, the life that she she thought she was going to get. She didn't die. She died in, in, in a um, non-literal way. She lost every element of her life before she, she outlived her daughter and she uh, had to sort of die and be reborn into this new life and adopt a new daughter. And then three, she loses that daughter again, which is considered by a lot of people that watch the movies uh, overly cruel um, for her arc. To defend that choice, it's definitely cruel, but it makes perfect sense within the context of the version of Alien 3 that we got. Yeah, I, I like Alien 3, don't get me wrong, and I, and I admire that choice. I, I wasn't entirely happy with the recent uh, push to have a movie retcon that out. No, um, no. Me- I, I mean, I'd be fine seeing that movie, but it's just the, the reactions from people seemed very childish. I kind of like upending happy endings as a way to start your, your movie. I guess I say I like that, but that doesn't happen that often. That's why it feels like such a fun, well, I don't want to say fun choice. But it feels like such an interesting choice to basically take away everything that the the previous movie was about. Not so you could do it all over again like a lot of sequels, but so you could just totally recontextualize what that movie meant. Uh, she goes through, yeah, a sort of arc through motherhood. And in a lot of ways, I think Alien Resurrection is sort of a, a feminist 
uh, horror movie, action horror movie about uh, capable women sort of marking off their own path in this strange world that men dominate them in. There's a scene where uh, early in Alien 4, uh, Alien Resurrection, uh, <laughs> the movie we're talking about. Uh, I like that. I like that you started calling the movie something different at the very end of this podcast. Yeah, it's just there's a scene where the man, uh, the lead scientist, says, "You're going to make us all very proud to her in this very condescending, patriarchal way. That's really gross." And she's just kind of like doesn't recognize them at all, uh, and, and she kind of bucks against the scientists. She's just like. These fucking asshole men don't know anything about me, about what I've been through and like how hard it is to just be alone and feel kind of weird. And she just gets stronger and stronger as the movie goes on. She's just like smirking and feeling a sort of like building confidence within herself as the movie goes on and sort of discovering what her humanity is. And I, I, I love that as an arc for the character that now that she's been, she died at the end of three and she's reborn stronger, but kind of jaded by what she's been through. So Aaron, how do you react to, to Ripley's arc through the, the four movies? I think it's really good. I, I think that it's important to note that this really isn't Ripley. The Ripley that we knew, her arc ends in a somewhat satisfying way at the end of three. And I think this is part Ripley, part not. What's interesting is that she's really not the point of view character for the first hour of this movie at the very least maybe the whole movie which is a big change from the other movies and i think that's a that's a tough switch to make because she really has been at least from two and three because she was just kind of a member of the crew in the first one who ended up being the one that survived and was strong enough to defeat the alien i think her arc still is satisfying in the sense that now her pain has kind of been lifted and she is trying to come to terms with who she was in this past life and what that means while still caring less than she did in the first couple movies about her own survival. She she definitely feels like she's throwing caution to the wind in a lot of ways in the middle of this movie when she's just kind of walking around and killing aliens, like partially because she can heal, but also it just feels like she before she had something to live for and it's not that she doesn't have anything to live for in the faith in the fact that she's suicidal but she doesn't have anything to live for in the sense that she really that concept is probably foreign to her she doesn't have anyone alive this is a foreign world and she basically says that like this isn't my world i don't have anything here weaver does a great job with that if you were going to make an alien four uh, because there's the 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 arc of of Ripley's character in the first three is such a perfect closed story. If if she was just straight resurrected, this movie would be slightly less satisfying. It it allows for a sense of uh, familiarity with her character while still adding a sense of alienness, which is perfect. Yeah, I uh, I agree, and it, and it sort of allows her to transition to this like strange new world, and I think it helps sort of explain why she's so wisecracking about shit in this in this world like early on someone says we're the military we're not some greedy corporation and she just goes oh it, it won't make any difference you're all yeah. gonna die like yeah like, that's great like, i just been, wish that sometimes she had better wise cracks <laughs> and honestly there were, that was one of the exchanges that i found really clever in the script and i think that sigourney weaver when given the proper material in the script creates one of the most interesting characters i've ever seen her play in her career it's just like she gets to be a straight badass but she's not just like gruff and mean she has moments of sensitivity 
creativity. There's that scene where uh, she tears out the tongue and hands it to the alien's tongue and hands it to, to Winona Ryder. And it's like, hey, you want a souvenir? Which is like, in the moment, not all that funny. But then the callback later where she's like, do you want me to rip out Ron Perlman's tongue for talking <laughs> shitty about you? It's kind of awesome. She's like turned into a Game of Thrones character for three seconds. <laughs> That's an exchange that I really, really liked that I think Sigourney Weaver has a sense of menace and a sense of power about her that she can really control. And, 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 well, and she and she's kind of throughout the course of the movie discovering uh, her humanity and discovering what hurts her. Like, there's the point early on where she doesn't really care if Winona Ryder's character ultimately ends up shooting her, even when uh, she finds out that she doesn't have the alien inside her anymore. And then later does have a form of self-preservation, is trying to save the planet, and can be hurt by by seeing the other versions of herself. It feels like it is a satisfying mini-arc of kind of coming to terms with uh, her humanity and what that means for her. I, I, I agree. I think, I, th- I think that's one of the points that we'll agree on, is that the strongest part of this movie is Sigourney Weaver. I think we agreed on most points. Yeah, I think that we I think we came to a sort of I think at first it seemed like this is going to be sort of a Dark City episode. I even made a joke about that. We're like, I really like the movie and Aaron fucking hates it. We came to a nice balance. Whereas because this is this is a movie that's incredibly interesting. It moves like lightning. It's super. Yep. It's so fun to watch. And so a lot of the little annoyances, like little annoying lines that, that got got kind of in my hair, they went away. Calling this the worst of the five alien movies, including Prometheus, is not a testament to how bad this movie is. It's a testament to how strong the Alien series is as a whole. I love the series, yeah. Yeah, I mean, mean, basically the range on these movies goes from very good to masterpiece. So comparing this to other Alien movies... There's some things that don't work for me. Comparing this to most other sci-fi action horror movies, this is amazing. It is a really strong movie. It's only the fact that it comes in maybe one of the best film series of all times where everything is worthwhile. In its own unique way. It's not like a movie. It's not a series that just keeps repeating itself. And it's like slightly diminishing returns until it gets bad. It executes a riff on itself four times. It's, It's one of the few series that I, like I said, the reason that I've seen this so often uh, and so recently is that I make it a point every couple of years to watch uh, all four of these movies in order. I feel like that's always a worthwhile way to spend my time. Yeah, I Alien and Aliens are have completely different goals, and even more so, Alien three and four and five all have completely different goals. Five is very introspective until it's not. Four is essentially an Aliens esque action movie but it's got some fantasy elements sort of stitched in to make it more uh, comic booky, and it's not like James Cameron sort of grounded down uh, sort of Hollywoodism. Yeah, and three is a suicide note. And three is a suicide note. Three is the most divergent out of all the series, probably. Three I tend to like every time I see it a little bit more, so... Usually um, in a the, the funny thing about three is that usually in a movie like that where people are dealing with grief, somebody dies at the top of Act Two, and then uh, somebody has to deal with grief for let's say a montage worth, and then that motivates them to their final actions at the end of, of Act Three. Uh, Alien Three is just a hangover from the first two movies. <laughs> You're not used to seeing characters getting to that you love get to 
revel in this much suffering and four is almost like a ripley gets to go back to earth ripley gets a, a redemption um aaron do you have any final thoughts on alien yeah i do um I, I actually feel like this this is a perfect way to take the series after the self-contained uh first three while still having an element of uh connectivity in ripley while still taking her to a fun new direction. Uh, it's not without its flaws. It has moments or broader things that I don't think work in the broader alien universe, as well as problems that don't work specifically to this movie, but it's still a really good time. Again, all the alien movies that don't have a versus at the end are worth your time. I think that one of our key points of the show is to admire ambitious failures and mark where their failures, where they where they succeeded, um, and I think this movie isn't necessarily a failure, but uh, I think that even if you do consider it such, that it is memorable, super interesting. It takes a series in a direction that you wouldn't necessarily expect. It's got sequences that I think are like some of the best in the series. I think that the per- the the lab scene and the underwater swimming scene are uh, really really noteworthy and really. Um, sort of gorgeously crafted more the lab scene than the underwater scene but the underwater scene is one of the few good action scenes underwater ever you know there's more than one mark of a movie worth your time without having to say good or bad or even assign a star rating or anything like that and i think any movie that keeps you thinking about it and makes you want to revisit it or has some stuff you want to parse out or just sequences that you play over and over in your head is the mark of a movie that is worth your time. So th- so thank you so much for joining us. This was Alien Resurrection, a movie, and we loved to watch it. How do you feel about that for closing catchphrases? It's just lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Uh, we'll strike that. Tell us in the comments what you want us our catchphrase to be. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we have two more weeks left of alien reinvasion next week we will be doing species two which is a movie i am uh both scared and excited to revisit and then our final episode before we go into kill billies in august our final episode of alien reinvasion is going to be superman 2 the uh richard lester cut not the donner cut um because that is the the version that most people have probably seen i haven't seen either so i can't speak to the quality <laughs> of uh of them so that'll be a fun uh a fun watch yeah and we'll be joined on that episode by fan favorite and artwork creator for our show zach groden we're very excited to have him back we had a ton of fun with him on our godzilla episode so like we're available on itunes stitcher and tune in like rate and review us please and if you have any feedback for the show and you want to uh get in touch with us uh we are available at wltwpodcast.com and uh yeah wltw podcast we love to watch podcast.com you can also reach us at uh twitter at wltw pod and uh and here is peter's home phone number if you have i said a home phone number like anyone has one of those (laughs) the cable company don't even bother asking anymore uh so thank you so much next week we will announce our lineup and our guests for the killbilly month in august uh we should have all that finalized by the time we record that in a few weeks for us a week for you guys so so thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time when we will love to watch something else yep that's it
<laughs> Jesus Christ. You're gold. Kick. <laughs> <laughs>